1: The White House has pushed forward the move to weaken fuel economy standards in the United States. President Obama had required automakers to double efficiency standards to an average of 54 miles per gallon by the year 2025. The current administration lowered that target to around 37 miles per gallon. They would also look to block states like California from having their own standards. To dive deeper into this story, we are joined on the phone by John Paul McDuffie, professor of management here at the Wharton School and director of the Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation at Wharton's Mack Institute, and also joining us, Sarah Light, assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School. John Paul, Sarah, great to catch up with you both. Thank you both. Good to be here. Thanks
0: so much for having us.
1: Thank you. Uh, So how much, John Paul, does this change impact the automakers themselves?
2: Well, a lot depends on how they decide to respond to it. Uh, they're being a bit cautious, saying they don't want a big change that changes their already their product development plans. You know, they're preparing models eight to ten years out in some some ways. And uh, one of their worries is that one aspect of this, which is the federal government's attempt to remove. California's uh, ability to set different standards one that's uh, 14 other 13 other states follow um they worry that actually the consequence could be two different sets of standards that they have to develop cars for and they really don't want that so I think they they don't want to give up all the advanced technology initiatives they've been doing. They wouldn't mind a slightly more relaxed pace, and they absolutely don't want to set the standards.
1: But even off of that 54 miles per gallon standard that the White House, the prior administration had, had put into place, uh, there were credits and stuff, I, I, I believe, that would have not actually held them to that 54 number and would have lowered it a little bit. Correct, John Paul?
2: Yeah, there's there's all kinds of things that were negotiated during the Obama years, and and that would have been one approach that the EPA and the Trump administration should, could have taken, which is to continue to allow a lot of flexibility in the way the standards were met without taking away the goal of you know advancing the, the technologies and the product mix in, in different ways. I, I think you know at, at one level it's easy to see this as an effort, another effort to just reverse uh, a one of the key policies of the Obama era and to just have a big headline, which says uh, we're getting rid of regulations. But some of these fuel efficiency regulations have a history that goes back to the 1970s to the clean air act by bipartisan support from Republican and democratic presidents and Congresses. So, um, you know, it, I think there's, there's, there's not a huge appetite for this change uh, in the auto industry, and so it'll be interesting to see what they actually do. And remember, they're global companies, so the U.S. Yeah. is their their biggest market, but they've got to think about the global market.
1: Sarah, how have you reacted to this story?
0: Well, um, I have a number of reactions, and I think one of the things that's really important to understand as a legal matter is that this is a proposed regulation. Right. It's not a final rule. So the way that U.S. – regulatory uh law works is agencies here the environmental protection agency and the department of transportation issue a proposal for a rule and publish it in the federal register and make it available to the public for a notice and comment period for a certain period of time usually minimum of 30 days this one I, i actually not sure it may be slightly longer than that and then the agencies are required to take into account the comments that they've received and it is entirely possible that the final rule may look different from the proposal. So sometimes I think the headline is the Trump administration is weakening the standards. The the more accurate headline would be the Trump administration is proposing to weaken the standards. And so it's not clear that the rule that uh, has been proposed uh, as of August 2nd is actually going to be what the final rule looks like. Um, in addition, you mentioned that uh, that their proposal is to revoke California's ability to set its own vehicle emission standards. Um that would be the first time ever that the EPA has sought to revoke a waiver that has already been granted. Yeah. It's clear that there's legal authority for that. But the um, attorney general of the state of California has already indicated that uh, the state will sue to challenge any effort to revoke California's waiver. So I think that this is um, obviously a very important potential action, but it's not clear yet what the final rule is going to look like.
1: And it sounds like that, that as you said, if California does contest any action against uh, it by the federal government, that we are looking at, at I would guess, a long played-out legal battle that, uh, that would be before us, Sarah?
0: Yes, I think that that's absolutely right. Um, so uh, California has unique authority under the Clean Air Act, which was passed in 1970, because California had been regulating emissions for motor vehicles beginning in the late 1960s. So it was at the forefront of regulating vehicle emissions, which led Congress to carve out this special authority. And the authority says that California um, can apply for a waiver from the EPA uh, of of sort of ban on states having their own standards, right? We don't want to have 50 different emission standards, as John Paul mentioned. The auto manufacturers like to have some degree of uniformity. Um, They don't want to have to build 50 different cars. But California, because it was regulating before the federal government, got this special uh, exception. So it can apply for a waiver if it demonstrates that its standards are at least as protective of human health uh, as the federal standards, um, as well as if they are sort of necessary to address some special conditions in California. And as we all know, California has uh, extreme levels of air pollution that don't necessarily exist in other parts of the country. So California has requested waivers, I believe, more than 50 times, Every request has been granted, with the exception of one, uh, which was a denial the first time California requested a waiver to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Um, The uh, EPA, under the Bush administration, denied the waiver request, but after the Supreme Court decided the case of Massachusetts versus EPA, saying that EPA had authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, and President Obama was elected, EPA then granted the waiver. There has never been a revocation. It is, um, if you actually look at the text of the Clean Act, it is uh, not authorized by the text. So um, I think that to revoke California's waiver would be a serious uphill legal battle for the federal government here.
1: John Paul I mean obviously California has, has as Sarah mentioned has tried to set these standards in place because of of the higher levels of of pollution that they have seen in the air uh, you know over the last several decades but you also mentioned the yeah. the other states that that have kind of followed this path as well while they don't necessarily have the standard itself they have been following the standard correct
2: Yeah, and I don't, Sarah might know exactly when that was uh, authorized. Maybe it was part of the original Clean Air Act, or maybe it was added later. But um, basically, states were given the choice. They could go with the California standard, which was tougher, or they could go with the federal standard. And I think it's 13 states now, all the New England states, uh, New York states. I mean, you know, it it, it breaks down a little bit along of, of. traditional liberal versus conservative uh, ideological lines, which is part of probably what factors into this uh, particular challenge to the California plus other states rule. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the there's enough states now that have the higher standard that the auto companies pretty much shoot for that. Um, And the, the sort of one of the big questions here is what, is the incentive for the auto companies to keep working away at fuel efficiency in the absence of a very ambitious goal. Right. Um, I think the companies themselves have been uh, surprised to find at how quickly they were able to meet some of the earlier stage targets. Um, and by the way, this isn't just about making smaller cars or lighter cars. It's about a lot, or, or electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles. It's about a lot of innovations to the internal combustion engine to make it more fuel efficient. It's the reason that you find, you know, very hard to buy a V8 in anything. Um, A lot of cars that might have had a V6 in the past now have a turbocharged, you know, four-cylinder. You've got features in lots more vehicles where, you know, when you're at a stoplight, a couple of the cylinders will drop out because you don't need them all in those conditions, and they may only come back in during acceleration. There's a vast amount of innovation in internal combustion engines to help meet these goals, and it might not, you know, continue at that pace. It's it's expensive, but it is advancing goals um, that are both uh, of advantage to the individual consumer in terms of lower gas prices and obviously to the broader uh, environmental goals. So let me just add one more thing. There's some evidence, you know, in technology policy general, there's a a view that the technology, the government should not pick winners, should not pick which technology uh, gets gets won, and right. that's generally been the approach of the Clean Air Act. But there's some interesting uh, research on catalytic converters, which is one of the very earliest ways in which emissions and fuel efficiency were tackled. And there were uh, was a tremendous amount of innovation shown in patenting at both automakers and suppliers. When the Clean Air Act came in. In the Reagan administration, there was some relaxing of the pace of the Clean Air Act, and the patenting activity dropped down to close to nothing. And then later, uh, I think in the first Bush administration, uh, they were the pace was resumed, and the patenting innovation resumed. So this seems to be an industry which you know has typically dragged its feet on safety technology and on environmental technology. Where to have a bit of a forcing pressure, not to one specific technical fix, but to a technical goal, has actually been very valuable for getting innovation.
1: 844. Wharton is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. 844- 942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter at BizRadio132, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21, joined by John Paul McDuffie uh, and Sarah Light of the Wharton School, uh, talking about the changes in uh, fuel efficiency standards potentially coming forward uh, here in the United States in the, uh, in the months and or years to come. I guess, Sarah, playing off of your comments. Earlier, because you would have that challenge, uh, how likely do you think it is that that we see any kind of change to these standards in the near future? At this point,
0: well, um, it, it is likely that we will see a final rule uh, after the comment period closes, possibly by the end of this year or early next year. But it is likely that it is going to get tied up in litigation, given the fact that the California Attorney General, as well as the attorney generals of other states, that um, are authorized to and have in the past followed California standards, but they're going to litigate um, the legal standard to get a stay of a rule. So let's say the EPA and the Department of Transportation they move forward, um, they issue a final rule, and the states sue. Um, often, what happens is that the uh, States would request a stay of the existing rule. It's a relatively high standard to get a stay. You basically need to show a likelihood of success on the merits at an early stage in the litigation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's a little bit unclear whether the rule would go into effect even if the states do pursue litigation. Another another way of looking at this um, is you know we've been talking a lot about how California has this special authority under the Clean Air Act. Um, We have actually been living in essentially a kind of one-car standard for the last several years because under the Obama administration, the uh, auto manufacturers were so um, adamant that there be a single standard rather than to have to comply with a standard for fuel efficiency in terms of miles per gallon, a standard in terms of greenhouse gas emissions in terms of grams per mile, as Mm -hmm. well as California standards that the EPA, the Department of Transportation, and the state of California essentially negotiated, um, effectively, a single standard. Um, and the automakers kind of got on board with that standard, and that was back in 2012, and agreed not to challenge it. And they withdrew existing litigation, which had been challenging California's independent standard. So. You know The other class, in addition to environmental management, that I teach is negotiation. So another way to think about this is uh, sort of an opening move in the negotiation strategy, which is an effort by the administration to get California to negotiate with it for a single standard. Um, we'll see. Not clear that that's really going to work
1: in this environment. Well, John Paul, what, what did you hear as, as the reaction from the auto industry as this was all starting to play out? Uh, because obviously, as, as you both have mentioned, they obviously have a lot invested in this. We're talking about a time where they're also investing in all kinds of other technologies to, you know, to uh, to move uh, vehicle transportation into the next uh, into the next. Uh, uh, Path that that we're going to follow for fifty to a hundred yep. years at this point.
2: Yep. Well, I mean, I think there's there's several things that can be said. Back in the global financial crisis, when GM and Chrysler were going through bankruptcy and the federal government was the lender of last resort, and some of these, uh, you know, new cafe goals were set. They didn't say much, <laughs> and maybe they couldn't have said much to protest it uh, publicly. Certainly. Uh, the auto companies have never liked, um, federal regulations and they've shown that in various ways. I think they've actually been more cooperative Mm -hmm. with proactively working to shape those regulations in, in recent years. And what Sarah mentioned, which was this effort to make sure they could face just one standard rather than the difference between the federal and the California through a lot of good negotiation was, was an outcome very much to their, their liking, you know. Since then, they've complained about the pace being too uh, aggressive, and they've gotten a lot of flexibility that's been granted, and I think that was what we probably figured would keep happening, a little bit of stretching of the goals, a little more flexibility in ways to meet it. That would still let them keep their, uh, their own technical kind of roadmap, their own investment plans, and their own synchronization between the U.S. domestic market and the global market. And I guess, you know, as I said at the beginning, all those things are still holding for them to make them want to keep a certain trajectory, not change that much. Now, they also don't want to come out and publicly oppose the president, and they don't really want to say that they love the regulations, because at a base level, they don't. Um, And so, but they're kind of saying, well... In in a way, if you read between the lines, we said we wanted flexibility, but we didn't want to throw out the whole old structure because that's very destabilizing for us. So I think those are the things that are that are going on. Um, You know, I I think with respect to uh, let me just say one more thing about the global uh, uh, angle. Right. China looks to be building the biggest electric vehicle market in the world with a very aggressive government policy, both to encourage their domestic firms to make electric vehicles, to require foreign firms to build electric vehicles in the country, to invest in charging infrastructure, etc. They're really trying through centralized government push to create a market that hasn't really taken off anywhere else in the world. Well, and it's already the biggest in the world. So every automaker in the world that wants to have electric vehicles is going to be developing them and maybe testing them out in China first. So if suddenly in the U.S. they didn't have to do any more electric vehicles, they could easily meet the CAFE requirements without it. They wouldn't stop doing electric because they don't want to miss out on the China market or the Europe market, which also has a set of tough standards. And so, um, again, it's, it's, it, these are reasons why they might not change that much, but it also raises the question: Why do we want them to back off their pace very much at all? If we think that these are important technologies for the industry in the future, not just in the U.S. but worldwide, and you know, leaving aside the the, the climate change benefits, which of course yeah. get debated in the broad ideological sense, but I think it's very clear. Uh, Cars are the number one source of greenhouse gas uh, in the world now, I think even above commercial buildings.
1: Sarah?
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with basically everything John Paul just said. I think that the global market um, is an enormous piece of the puzzle. Um, and my understanding is that, you know, it's possible to think about sort of the auto industry in general, but there is some differentiation in terms of the different automakers and the extent to which the United States is kind of the dominant portion of their market versus uh, Japan or China. And so um, it is entirely possible that uh, keeping the kind of global market and global demand for more efficient vehicles in mind, um, that there will still be technological process. Uh, progress. I think the other thing to recognize is that you know there's this concern, there's sort of an articulated concern as part of the Trump administration's proposed rule that somehow this is too onerous for auto manufacturers to meet these standards. Mm-hmm. But in fact, California has determined that automakers have essentially overcomplied with its zero emission vehicle standards. They're not having any trouble meeting the technology requirements. So I think that that's really a bit of a red herring as well. Um, And again, as a legal matter, to take it out of the auto context into sort of different contexts, when we're thinking about sort of global regulatory regimes, there have been many cases in the past when the United States has had one standard and Europe has had another, and these tend to influence one another. So back in, uh, you know, there hasn't been a major revision of any environmental law in the United States since 1990 until... 2016, when the United States revised its uh, toxic uh, chemicals law, largely because Europe had passed a sort of more restrictive, uh, more precautionary regime, and global firms that were operating in both markets already had to comply with Europe's rules. So it became less of a problem when the United States decided to make certain. Uh, of its rules more stringent as well. So I think that the global influence, um, even if it doesn't happen immediately, is certainly going to play a really big role
1: here. And seemingly, Sarah, that's what I think a lot of people believe is going to happen with the implementation of the GDPR rule in in Europe uh, involving uh, Internet privacy with a lot of the companies like Facebook and Twitter and, and some of the other entities as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, we obviously live in a in a one legal jurisdiction. But when you're dealing with global multinational firms that are playing in a lot of different sandboxes, They have to comply with laws passed by other jurisdictions, and that really kind of changes the game. I think we can't look at this with blinders on to what's going on outside the United States.
1: So then going back to something you said a second ago then, the the idea of these automakers having to shoot for 54.5 miles per gallon, realistically, with a lot of the technologies that were were being developed and and in play here, you don't think that that was a a standard that was, was even too ambitious, do you?
0: No, I mean, I think that it's – I don't think that it was too ambitious. I think that that's essentially what was negotiated in consultation with the automakers – excuse me, manufacturers. So, um, no, I don't think it's too ambitious. Uh, Given my sort of policy and law expertise, I would really defer to John Paul's expertise on what would go uh, on from the perspective of the automakers. John Paul? Yeah, I mean, there there are so many –
2: different ways to meet the requirement now and as you mentioned Dan, uh, an electric vehicle manufacturer can sell some of the credits that they get from having a zero-emissions vehicle to a traditional automaker who can use those credits as part of meeting their total requirements so yeah. actually Tesla has made quite a bunch of money off of selling their credits to traditional automakers and uh, you know that kind of uh, sort of balancing across the system has added some flexibility and, you know, taken a bit of the pressure. And, you know, I guess an automaker that is furthest behind might um, have the greater incentive to buy some of those credits in the short term while they, while they work on the other technologies. Uh, I, you know, I, I think if you were to ask point blank the, you know, the head technology person in one of these companies is 54 too ambitious, they would probably not say no. They would right. say it's very demanding and we're working on lots of projects. Um, but my sense is that, uh, as we've seen in, in the past, there's a there's a phenomenon that researchers of technology have studied called the last gasp, where uh, an incumbent technology that's threatened with replacement goes through a tremendous burst of innovation for a period which could actually last quite a while. Uh, and so if you think of electric vehicles or electric uh, propulsion as the new technology that's threatening the traditional internal combustion engine, I think we're very much in the glory period of a last gasp set of innovations. Um, And it's, uh, I think, surprised everybody how much more they've been able to squeeze in terms of fuel efficiency, in terms of better emissions performance, out of a whole new set of ideas that weren't even really around in, in years past. So, you know, to me, that kind of innovation's exhilarating, and what we ought to see coming out of our automakers. I think for the engineers working on it, they probably feel the same way. Right. Um, from a overall corporate policy perspective, I think probably corporate leaders just don't want to get in a box where they're suddenly um, having to do things technically that they feel have poor return on investment, that would lead to them making vehicles that nobody will buy, uh-huh. et cetera. I mean, there's you know a, a cafe type of system has some, uh, any economist would tell you, some problems because it might force making more very small, very fuel-efficient cars that nobody really wants to buy because they're too small and they're too uncomfortable. Um, But I think in in many ways, consistent with this theme that in this industry, a little bit of push towards a very ambitious technical goal has been good. I I think we're we're seeing the fruits of that right
1: now. Great having you both with us. Thank you, John Paul. Thank you, Sarah. Enjoy your rest of your day. Thanks Thanks. so much. Thank you. Sarah Light from uh, the Wharton School and the same for uh, John Paul McDuffie joining us here on the show.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.